Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Auto workers strike in day 11, 38 new locations now added. In the meantime, it appears we may be nearing the end of the writer's strike. And today on the show, it's National Nurses United and the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. Welcome to the Monday, September 25th edition of America's Workforce, where we're available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start off with Dominique Hamilton. Now, Dominique is with National Nurses United. She's been a registered nurse for six years. For the past two years, she has worked in the intensive care unit at St. Mary's Hospital in Tucson, Arizona. St. Mary's and St. Joe's, another hospital there, voted overwhelmingly over the summer in favor of ratifying a new three-year contract, winning protections to improve, number one, patient safety and nurse retention. Good stuff. Dominique is going to talk about how difficult it is to be a nurse today. A lot of nurses saying, you know what, I might have to leave this profession because I'm not being treated. She's going to talk about what she does, too. She is a chief nurse rep and a charge nurse and what that role is all about. So she'll be our first guest. Greg Regan will be joining us later in the show, longtime supporter of America's Workforce. He serves as president of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO, and Greg is going to talk about legislation called the Rail Worker and Community Safety Act. Last week was a Rail Safety Week, and they figured it would be appropriate to introduce this legislation, what it's going to do, and there's been a lot of attention, as you well know, on rail safety after what happened in East Palestine, Ohio. Mind you, now listen to this. According to federal data, Every three hours, every three hours in America, there is a reportable injury. So every eight hours, there is a derailment that reaches what they call the threshold of $11,500 in damage. In other words, three times every day, there could be another East Palestine, Ohio. That's what's going on in America, which is not being picked up by the mainstream media. And this Rail Safety Act apparently would correct a lot of that, but... It needs some traction. TTD.org is the uh, website you want to check out for all that information. Now, a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at BoydWatterson.com. The labor strike against the big three car makers expanded on Friday as 38 new strike locations were announced targeting Stellantis and General Motors. UAW President Sean Fain made the announcement saying all parts distribution locations for Stellantis and GM at cities across 20 states will now join the strike. Now, here's the latest. Ford is coming closer to a deal with the union, unlike GM and Stellantis, according to Sean Fain. But to be clear, he said, we're not done negotiating with Ford yet. However, no Ford plants were affected by Fain's announcement on Friday. 
And we have a comment from the Ford Motor Company. Ford is working diligently with the UAW to reach a deal that rewards our workforce and enables Ford to invest in a vibrant and growing future. So that's the latest on the auto workers strike. For complete updates, I urge you to go to UAW.org. Meanwhile, Union leaders in Hollywood studios reached a tentative agreement Sunday to end a historic screenwriter's strike after nearly five months, although there's still no deal in the works for striking actors, SAG-AFTRA actors and actresses that went on strike in mid-July. The Writers Guild of America announced the deal in a joint statement with the Alliance of Motion, Picture, and TV Producers, the group that represents the studios, streaming services, and production companies. Got a comment here from the Guild. This was in an email to members yesterday. WGA, the Writers Guild of America, has reached a tentative agreement with the Hollywood producers. This was made possible by the enduring solidarity of our members and the extraordinary support of our union siblings who joined us on the picket lines for over 146 days. The three-year contract agreement settled on after five marathon days of renewed talks by both sides that was joined in times by studio executives. How about that? It must be approved by the Guild's board and members before the strike officially comes to an end. Now, in a longer message from the Guild shared by members on social media, the writers were told the strike is not over and no one, no one was to return to work until hearing otherwise. But picketing is to be suspended immediately. Terms of the deal not immediately announced the tentative deal to end the last writer's strike, which goes back to 2008, was approved by more than 90 percent of their members. Now, This agreement comes just five days before the strike would have become the longest in the Guild's history and the longest Hollywood strike in more than 70 years. Now, as a result of the agreement, nightly network shows, including NBC's Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon and ABC's Jimmy Kimmel Live, could return to the air within days. However... It's far from being back to business as usual in Hollywood as talks have not yet resumed between the studios and the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation, and TV radio artists. Got a comment here from SAG-AFTRA. SAG-AFTRA congratulates the WGA on reaching a tentative agreement with the Hollywood producers after 146 days of incredible strength, resiliency, and solidarity on the picket lines. And while we look forward to reviewing... Their contract agreement, a tentative one, we remain committed to achieving the necessary terms for our members. That's the comment from SAG after still on strike. All right, quick break. When we come back, National Nurses United. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. 
The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylights and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, where you can find more at ulagency.org. All right, let's go to the state of Arizona right now. Joining us on our live line is Dominique Hamilton. She is with National Nurses United. And I'll tell you, this is a giant union. In fact, right now they have nearly 225,000 members nationwide. Affiliates include the California Nurses Association, D.C. Nurses Association, Michigan Nurses Association, Minnesota Nurses Association, and the New York State Nurses Association. And uh, recently they had... uh, had a fight for a new contract. We're going to talk about that at, at uh, a couple of uh, hospitals there, St. Mary's and St. Joseph's. Dominique, welcome to America's Workforce. Thanks for joining us today. You know, and I always like to start off an interview with, uh, with a little background on how you got involved in this profession, a very honorable profession. I was reading earlier, you've been an RN for about six years, but let, let's start there. A little background on yourself and maybe any union affiliation in your hospital. I know you're involved in your union over there, but go ahead. This is all yours. Hi, yeah, thanks, and, and good afternoon. I'm so excited to be on this show. Um, right, so I have... Um, there's, I, you know, I guess just to start, Arizona is not a very union-friendly state, unfortunately. It's a right-to-work state. Um, there's a lot of workers out here that really have never had experiences with unions before. Um, so I can't say that at this facility, the St. Mary's Hospital where I work, um, there was any union presence, really. Um, I think the only one that I can think of is some uh, contracted agency workers who do electrical work, um, but certainly none of the uh, core hospital staff were unionized before we joined with NNU about five years ago. Like a lot of my fellow nurses, a lot of us come into this because uh, we have a loved one who was once sick and needed nursing care. For me, that was my mom. When I was a teenager, she uh, had cancer, uh, pretty aggressive cancer, and I saw how nurses in her in her life and in her care really helped 
not just to ease her pain or discomfort, but to really motivate her that she can, you know, get through this and, and be a support system and be just very, very lovely towards her in her time of, uh, Mm -hmm. in a time of need when she, when she had not a lot to hope for. And so when I saw that and then having, you know, a couple of nurses in my family who I really respect and admire, um, it was an easy choice for me to get into nursing. Yeah, it is certainly a calling, and obviously that was a game-changer, a life-changing moment for you to get involved in this profession. And I was reading that it didn't take you very long to become pretty active in your union, and I guess uh, things were a little bit uh, difficult back in, uh, what was it, in 2019 when uh, when you went on strike. Could you reflect on what happened that time? Absolutely. When, when we first unionized in 2018, I, I do remember it being quite divisive. Um, there were, you know, plenty of nurses who were afraid of what being unionized meant. And, and again, that really, you can, you can bring that back to lack of experience with unions before that, um, personal experience or familial or, or what have you. Um, the hospital did a very good job. I will say of uh, or doing did the hospital did their best uh, to try and union bust when we were organizing at first. A lot of fl- flyers that had you know those common myths of of how terrible unions are. They just steal your money. They um, don't do anything for you. Uh, you know those scare tactics followed up by you know we're a family. <laughs> we don't need anybody. We, need, we don't need a third party. We right. can settle things with just you and your manager. Etc. at all, at all. So there were some nurses that believed that, but I feel like the majority um, of the nurses, and obviously it was the majority because we voted the union in, uh, did understand the reality of the situation, which is that, you know, our hospital is owned by a very large company. It's um, owned by Tenant, and, and they own hospitals all over the country. Tenant really values profit more than patient care. And that's evident because we saw um, a really big shift when they when they took over. There's less staffing, uh, there's less resources. All of a sudden, we have more tasks and uh, less time to do them. And mm-hmm. so that that change happened actually before I became a nurse. Um, like two, I don't. I, well, I'm going to get the dates wrong, but it did. The the hospital was bought tenant before I was a nurse. So I came in and I would hear stories of how things used to be and how things are really changed since uh, the company has, you know, this company has come in. When we, um, so I think that there was a really big tapping into anger that happened, wherein the nurses knew that we needed more help, uh, more nursing staff in order to do our jobs properly. And if tenant had their way, we would be even more bare bones than we already are. So with that in mind and with knowing what we, what we need to do our jobs, what the patients deserve, um, a lot of people felt it to be a very natural conclusion that we would do something like go on strike or even go on a picket. We did a picket before we went on strike in order to really display how passionate we are about our patients and how, much it matters to us that we are able to have our voice in the conversation of how the hospital should be run. 
How long did the strike go back then? That's a great question. We actually, as as the nurses union, um, do very short strikes. So for us, it was only one day. Oh, okay. It was it was it was very limited. Um, but that one day, of course, cost the hospital a lot of money because they had. Um, to staff all of these units with uh, travel nurses, and you know, for a travel nurse to come into a striking hospital, it's it's quite a bit of money. I believe they bust people in from Phoenix in order to do this, um, and then we return to work the day after. Um, but it was twenty four hours on strike. Now, when you did that, did they all all of a sudden come to the bargaining table and say, "Okay, well, let, let, let's talk"? Did that happen, or did they drag it out some more? Um, a little bit of both, um, but you know, context is really important for that. Um, we we unionized October of 2018. We got our bargaining team together January of 2019, and then they were dragging their feet. Uh, I, I was on the bargaining team for that first contract as well as the second that we just finished, and you know, we would spend an entire day and in that bargaining room. And I feel like it, it felt like the only thing they changed was a punctuation of one of the proposals. Um, they were not taking seriously what we were saying. They were not entertaining any sort of idea that this was a collaborative agreement that we were working towards. And it was an absolute waste of time until we went on strike and they realized how serious this was. So when we so, came back, I believe we had some TAs, but we didn't get to our uh, contract signing, our tentative agreement, and then uh, ratification until, I believe, July of uh, 2020, which, of course, was mid-pandemic. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, could, <laughs> so we, we could do a whole show on what happened during the <laughs> pandemic. But, uh, you know, we're trying to put that behind us. Uh, and, and I salute every nurse that's listening right now on what you were able to power through during that pandemic that was an ugly ugly time for uh, so many health professionals uh, what you had to deal with but fast forward to uh what happened a couple of months ago now first of all did they live up were there violations of that contract i i i see you just ratified recently a new three-year contract and mm-hmm. I'm, i was looking at some of the some of the things you accomplished they're they're pretty remarkable but uh what about that process, the process that you went through just recently? How how was that uh, handled, in your opinion? Um, you know, it had a different feel. I think that the first time that we went through the contract process, we were so new at it. Um, we had, of course, the, the guidance and, and um, our labor reps and, and our uh, lead negotiator who had done this so often you know they they've done uh, nurse contracts with hospitals for many years um before coming to us and, and being there for us but for us in particular the nurses this was our first contract that we've ever had and so it was a real learning process on not only what does it say but how do we enforce it and really training ourselves to to realize that the hospital is going to try and violate this contract time and time again. Um, and so that, I think, goes back to that understanding that we really need needed to have for ourselves and are constantly educating new hires um, about of like, you know, we have this union in place that doesn't mean that everything is going to be solved, but that does mean that we have the ability to fight for um, big wins within the contract and then the ability to fight against when the contract is violated. We're speaking with Dominique Hamilton, and she's a chief nurse rep, which is pretty much like a union steward, and an ICU nurse 
and she works at uh, St. Mary's Hospital. There are two hospitals in Tucson, Arizona, St. Mary's and St. Joseph, all represented by National Nurses United, and they recently ratified a new three-year contract. And that contract will go to the end of May 2026. We'll talk more about that and also working in the ICU. Later in the show, Greg Regan on behalf of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. Back in a few minutes, you're listening to America's Workforce. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit SurveyAndBallotSystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is presented by the Laborers International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up, receive our shows on a regular basis, and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. Let's go back to Tucson, Arizona right now, and we're talking with Dominique Hamilton. She's an ICU nurse at St. Mary's Hospital. St. Mary's and St. Joseph, both uh, hospitals in Tucson, Arizona, are part of a giant healthcare company, Tenet Healthcare. <laughs> Dominique, I've heard a lot of horror stories about this company over the years, and, and sadly, this is, as far as I'm concerned, this is Ed Flash Farron speaking here. As far as I'm concerned, this is the Wall Street destruction of America. When you've got Wall Street, well, you have publicly traded companies and private hedge funds that have gobbled up businesses, some of them mom and pop businesses, and hollowed them out and made people like yourself work harder, longer, more patience, probably supplies that you're not getting to do your job. It's so sad what's happening, but 
Thankfully, you have a powerful union behind you. And National Nurses United, I've been following this union for years, and they're growing for obvious reasons for the stuff that I just talked about here. Uh, an ICU nurse. Now, I've seen a lot of TV shows. I'm, I'm sure you probably didn't watch them, but this is a very stressful job. Can you speak to that? And as far as the conditions that you have to deal with, on a daily basis there. Can you, uh, can you get in some details? Can you reflect on that? I'm sure we got a lot of listeners that want to hear your story. Go ahead. Absolutely. Uh, so, and just, you know, thinking about some of the TV shows and whatnot, it's, it is funny because in the ICU setting, it's, it's a critical care setting. And, you know, when somebody is, when a patient is not doing well, they're declining, they're declining rapidly. It is funny to watch those shows because sometimes they're pretty high energy and, and desperate when the reality is um, it's actually a very calm environment um, just in terms of, you know, everyone has to keep a cool head in order to do things efficiently. And sure. so I feel like that's, <laughs> that's a pretty unrealistic part about the television aspect of, of critical care. Um, I I really love being an ICU nurse. I've been uh, in this unit for the past two years. I came into it mid-pandemic and... Um, what I really love is the depth of, of medical knowledge that I've learned and continue to learn. Um, I, I adore my coworkers and, and really find a lot of gratification in seeing someone come in who is very sick and then putting these interventions in place um, along with, you know, doctors and respiratory therapy and so many different uh, fields working for, for these patients. And then um, I just, it's so rewarding to see them slowly get better, wake up, get to talk to them, you know, sort of uh, hear their voice and then see them uh, you know, get downgraded to a different floor that's less critical. Obviously, that mm-hmm. doesn't happen with everybody. Um, there's the other side of it where, you know, sometimes people come to the ICU and they don't make it. Um, and in that moment, I feel like the nursing changes from doing everything possible to save someone's life to then helping them and their family transition uh, them to a more hospice-esque situation and giving them as much respect and dignity and peace within that situation. Um, and mm-hmm. that's a, a very honorable thing to do in, in this setting as well. A day in the life of, of being in the ICU with the stressors that we're fighting against could look like having coming into the shift getting our assignments to patients, to one nurse. Um, There are times when the hospital doesn't have enough nurses to cover the patients two to one. Um, And so they'll give us a third. Um, What's difficult about that is now that's 50% of our daily workday added on. And it's a wildly inappropriate thing to do because we then are needing to divide our attention and our care between now three people, it seems like a small thing, but when you look at it, we need to be able to follow labs, orders, we're constantly monitoring things like blood pressures and heart rate and oxygen status. If there's a change and we're working with one of the three patients and we might not be able to catch something pretty important and Mm -hmm. that affects patient care. Um, You know, we're only one person and as as willing and dedicated and competent as we are, there are limits to what we can safely do. And so um, looking at that, too, we have on every unit, not just at, uh, the ICU, but we have on, on, on all these units uh, a charge nurse. This is a nurse that's 
specifically dedicated to running the unit for the duration of that 12-hour shift. Um, they oversee transfers on and off the unit for patients, admissions, or you know, new patients coming on. Um, they make sure that all the equipment is working. They guide new nurses who need, you know, still a lot of help with either simple tasks like starting an IV or helping them work through a patient that needs um, more medical intervention because they're not doing well. What's called a, a rapid response, and so. The, the charge nurse is, in a lot of ways, our resource today. The They're usually very experienced, um, very respected. And what the hospital is trending now uh, doing is giving that nurse a full patient load, just like a staff nurse, where they need to be available and free in order to help us with all of our tasks and things that pop up. Um, the hospital is finding it you know, quote unquote, necessary to now give that, treat that charge nurse like a staff nurse and give them their own patients. And then they're sort of stuck in this moral quandary of, I have these patients that are under my care. They have needs, they have meds, they have, their family has questions. They have, um, you know, I have to communicate to the doctor about these things and I want to be able to do that. But at the same time, a nurse is coming up to me asking for help and I still am the charge nurse. And it's being pulled in multiple directions where people need your help. And I think it's very um, it's very admirable in the nursing profession that we're want we want to help people. We want to be accommodating. We want to problem solve. Um, we want to do our best. But what's nice about being a union nurse as opposed to you know a nurse that doesn't have a union in her facility is that we have the ability to really put limits on how far we extend ourselves because mm-hmm. there is a limit on what is safe for the patients and safe for our license. Um, if there were to, God forbid, be some sort of um, situation where a patient wasn't able to get good uh, nursing attention and then they decline, the hospital you know, would much rather throw a nurse under the bus and go after our license, then be accountable themselves. Yeah. And so um, we want to be able to, you know, do the best for the patients. That's always the number one. But we want to be realistic with our uh, our time and, and our ability to do as much as we can within the limits of reason. Yeah, there's only so much a human can do, especially in a setting like that. Let me ask you, the charge nurses, are they part of the union or are they kind of like uh, mid-management? That's a great question. Um, You know, we had the union come in and most charge nurses uh, joined and signed up and they were able to do that. Right now, uh, we have it so that if someone becomes a charge nurse, and they're and they're newly becoming a charge nurse, then they actually are out of the union. So what we're sort of working towards is having that back. So long, long, uh, short answer to that is some charge nurses are a part of the union and very pro-union. Some charge nurses are not part of the union. And so it's, it's a sort of a, a gray area on who is there and who is not. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure management likes it that way. So this new <laughs> this this new contract that you signed off on, uh, I'm looking at some of the uh, the language here, safe staffing, and that's an issue all around, all around. 
uh, mm-hmm. wage increases. It looks like the wage increases are pretty decent, up to uh, 37% during the life of the agreement, plus uh, increase in night shift differential, meal and rest break program to require hospitals to provide additional staffing to provide rest breaks for nurses. So essential. You don't want burnout here. And I know a lot of nurses are burned out to the point that they're leaving the profession. So with with what I just mentioned, there's more, obviously, that was covered in this contract. At this point, nothing is perfect, Dominique. You know that. But how do you (laughs) feel going forward for the next couple of years? I feel immensely proud that we were able to win these provisions for this contract. Um, I also feel and can hold simultaneously that I am excited to do more. Um, there are so many things that, you know, throughout my career as a nurse here, um, I, I want to win alongside these nurses. Um, but in just backing up a little bit in terms of uh, what this contract says, I think something that I'm really, really excited about is that meal break program. Um, just to describe, you know, what it really looks like um, coming in. Um, I myself, I wake up around 5.45 in the morning. Um, you know, we clock in at 7 and we're um, on the floor doing patient care at probably 7.30 after getting report from the previous shift. Um, it's a very physical job. We're on our feet most of the day. Um, we are helping patients move and turn and, um, you know, assisting them with, you know, getting bathed and toileting and, um, you know, we're doing IVs, we're lifting heavy bags of, uh, you know, saline that could just be one liter. It could be five liters bag of saline. It's a very physical job. And at a certain point of the day, you know, once we hit midday, um, we may or may not, you know, pre this current contract, may or may not have been able to take a lunch break because the task list just, it starts off full and things just keep getting added to it. Um, a patient needs to be discharged and they need that paperwork. Um, somebody else needs an emergent scan um, and they need to be prepared for that. You know, the um, the constant communication between doctors and patients and their patients' family members, um, all of the paperwork that we have to make sure is perfectly aligned. It's a lot of responsibility. And um, there is a certain... Um, you know, unfortunate martyrdom that we sort of take on then of like, well, my patient needs their lunch trays. They need to, you know, use the restroom and we'll do that before we eat our own lunch and use the restroom ourselves. Um, What's exciting about this meal break program is now we're going to be having to be forced to slow down, take our 30 minute lunch breaks, not dash in the break room and scarf down everything we we packed in five minutes or less and leave the break room nauseated. That's happened to me more times than I can count. (laughs) Um, To actually sit down and be at rest and eat a lunch or, you know, look at a crossword (laughs) or something like that for 30 minutes um, would mean the world because then we can actually return to our unit and return to our patients refreshed fed um, and ready to, to take on more. Again, this is very physical work. It's very um, intellectual. There's a lot that goes into to the science 
um, of, of being a healthcare professional. We're having to really be on our game for that. Critical thinking um, is so, so important uh, to make sure that everyone remains safe. Um, and I think I want to add to, you know, physical, intellectual, there's an emotional component to being a nurse. Um, we see people come in and it could be, you know, illness, injury, um, end of life. And it's, this might be, you know, the hardest days of someone's life that we meet them. It's very important that we are emotionally present for whatever they need to go through. Grief, anxiety, um, frustration, pain, you know, um, they, they come needing help and we have the ability to do that. But it's really, really difficult to be present for them if we haven't taken care of ourselves first. Um, and so something as simple as a guaranteed 30 minutes could mean the world to our longevity as a, as a, as a nurse, as a bedside nurse, but also is going to immensely benefit the patients and the patient's families because we're going to be able to really be there for them. And, you know, we're not, we're not, we're still humans ourselves. I, I feel like even just this break would be helpful because sometimes we need a moment to step away and shed a tear or just sit with how, how difficult this job can be at times emotionally um, and then come back and, and be ready to do whatever is necessary. So um, I'm very excited about the contract, the mailbag program, especially and the end. Um, the wage grid uh, or the wage increases um, I think is going to do a lot for retaining nurses. I know you mentioned a little earlier about retention, um, or not retention, but nurses leaving the profession. Mm -hmm. You did mention that, yeah? Yes. Um, this is a real, um, a real heartbreak for, for us, I think, collectively. I don't want to deep dive into, into pandemic stuff, but it wasn't just the fact that it was hard uh, seeing these patients, so many of them, they were so sick. Um, it wasn't just that that really made people leave. It was the fact that the hospital was not giving us the tools that we needed to take care of these folks. That's what I feel like drove nurses to leave the profession more oh, than yeah. just this is hard because we're used to hard. We can handle the difficulties um, of what patient care is when we have the resources. It's when we don't and we're seeing that our employers are giving us more tasks with less resources when it becomes undoable. Um, and it's very, it's very sad when someone does, you know, leave um, because we have such relationships with each other. You know, we, there's friendships, there's um, a real community within nursing. And so when we saw as many people leave as we did, I think that um, there was a, a lot of heartbreak involved, but with this, now that we're coming out of that and we don't have, um, you know, crisis mode, disaster mode on our brains as much, um, I'm excited to build and create, you know, a better, healthier nursing culture um, with the help of this union and with, with empowerment of what the union provided, you know, and really demanding, like, we, we do deserve rest. We do deserve 
mm-hmm. um, to have more support. You definitely do. You need it. And you know what? The patients, Dominique, are on your side. I hope you know that. It's it's so important. They want they want to make sure that you're there for them. It's so important. Boy, I'm I'm so glad you joined us here on America's Workforce. Dominique Hamilton, she's a chief nurse rep and ICU nurse at St. Mary's Hospital in Tucson. And they uh, that hospital, as well as St. Joseph's nurses, ratified a new three-year contract. You please stay in touch. Stay safe. I know it's not easy, especially in your profession. And uh, this show is your show. Just remember that. We want those stories to come out so the people, the workers in America, know what's going on. Okay? Thank you so much. And um, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. And it's a real honor to be on this podcast, it's, you know, very similarly to how being a part of a union, I really have to recognize that this is, we are a small part of a huge labor movement and a really beautiful labor history um, here in this country. And so thank thank you really for, for having me on and uh, letting me share some of these stories. And hats off to uh, National Nurses United. What you did uh, five years obviously paved the way for what happened today. Dominique Hamilton on our live line. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with Greg Regan on behalf of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. Hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland at 216-881-1802. Call Music Talent of Cleveland as your dependable source for professional musicians in Northeast Ohio. Union musicians add harmony to weddings, elegance to parties, and uplifting music for all events. Music Talent of Cleveland contracts solo and ensemble musicians as well as bands and orchestras for single engagements. So hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland today. 216-881-1802. Hey, this is Sean McGarvey, and I'm president of North America's Building Trades Unions, and I'm a proud listener of America's Workforce. I love this podcast. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit SurveyAndBallotSystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. 
Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers, where you could find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go to the nation's capital right now and join one of our regulars, longtime regulars. That would be Greg Regan on behalf of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO, ttd.org. And last week, well, last week was a rail safety week. We'll talk about that. And uh, during that time, there was a rail safety press conference, which was all about introducing the Rail Worker and Community Safety Act. Yes, you want the workers on the rail to be safe and then the communities and, well, good example, East Palestine, Ohio. Those people are still, still dealing with the mess that happened earlier this year. Greg Regan, welcome back to the show. So uh, talk to me about this press conference last week and this uh, and this legislation. Go ahead. Sure. I, and, you know, I, I will say this is one of those um, one of those bills that I was really proud to be able to go up there and speak on behalf of. Um, and it was also really uplifting to see so many members of Congress come out to support us. It wasn't just uh, Senators Stanbury and, and Bowman, uh, who were the two lead co-sponsors. We had uh, Congressman Adam Schiff. We had the two chairs of the Labor Caucus. We had you know, several others come up and speak. Uh, yeah, this thing went on for a while because of all the support that we had for it. Um, but this bill itself is you know, another piece of rail safety legislation because there are members all over the country who remember what happened in East Palestine, they see the derailments that happened since then and recognize we need to do um, more and more. We need to act to do something to make our railroads safer. Um, and in this regard, you know, this is a piece of legislation that really reflects what the workers recognize as the major problems in the railroad industry. Um, you know, we're the eyes and ears on the ground. We see what happens. We see where the fault points are. Um, you know, you, who would have thought that we might be the ones who might you know, have better described exactly what needs to happen to make the place safer. You know, the sad part about this, Greg, is uh, it's more than East Palestine, Ohio. That was horrific in itself. But the mainstream media is not picking up how many problems there have been. And I was reading your letter here to uh, Alan Shaw. Alan is the head of uh, what, Norfolk Southern. Approximately every eight hours, every eight hours, there is a derailment that reaches what they call the reporting threshold of $11,500 in damage. In other words, three times every day, three times every day, there could be another East Palestine, Ohio. What is going on here, Greg? Well, it's nothing new. We've been saying this for, for years now that this is, that we have a problem on our hands. Um, it's just that East Palestine woke everyone up to it. Uh, you know, when we, the one of the things that frustrated me most is that I had Republicans or people from industry telling me, you know, after East Palestine, you know, you, well, all this stuff you're you're calling for here, you know, we don't even know what what caused the East Palestine derailment. So how can how can you say this would have prevented it? And I said, you're right. You know, we don't we don't exactly know what caused precisely what caused this particular accident, uh, but we can tell you based on our experience what caused the you know, thousands before that and what will cause the ones ahead of us that, you know, there isn't one panacea that's going to prevent all derailments, but we can tell you that there are safety problems in for signalmen, whether it be, uh, you know, notifications when the trains are coming. We know on the carbon side that there's, there's more that needs to be done in terms of providing more inspection time. We know that 
Uh, we need to have crew size, two people on every single freight train. So in all, every single crafting class in the railroads, they can identify a major safety hurdle currently at their workplace. And that's what we're trying to address. So that from the top to bottom, everywhere in the railroad, that we can make sure that it's safer for both workers and the communities to which the trains pass. You mentioned that the uh, the people on the rails, the conductors, those who are, who are working in the rails, no matter what they're doing, they are the eyes and the ears of what's going on. And and in many cases, they are afraid to speak up because they may get disciplined. Um, I understand we're trying to. Uh, <laughs> We're trying to get that out of the way right now. Where, where do we stand on that? Because if, if they know what's going on and they're afraid to say something about it, that's a problem in itself. Yeah, we're trying to get, um, at the very least, and this is, the, by the way, the bare minimum that the railroad should be doing, but uh, to get them to voluntarily join the confidential close call reporting system, um, you know, it's one of the first things we called for after uh, East Palestine. And, you know, this is a model based off of the aviation system where that has been in place for decades that is supported by both industry and unions, and that really works. Um, you know, you have the ability to report confidentially um, when there was a close call with the system. So, you know, again, this is not saying, oh, shoot, I showed up to work drunk and I made a mistake, and so I can just, I can just say it was a close call and, and it'll get me out of trouble. That's not how this works. This is identifying potential fault points within the system. So if you're on a railroad, it means, you know, if you're operating and you're on the same track and you get to one place and you're like, hey, you know what? I've gone through this one corner at the same speed and I felt like we were going to topple over. I need to report that as a potential safety risk in the system on this track um, because this is, this is now a couple of times I felt like it's been a little iffy going through there. And as you report this data, um, it gets reported to people at NASA. It gets reported to the FRA. And together, you know, as you accumulate data on close calls, it allows them to make recommendations for how to improve safety in the system. Um, and, it, and because people are free to report it without fear of reprisal or, or discipline, um, it it is unvarnished real data and information that will actually allow experts to provide real recommendations for how to improve safety. So this should be a no brainer, but unfortunately the railroads seem to think that, you know, their workers are just going to use this to as a constant get out of jail free card and a way that they can just get away with, with murder at the workplace. And frankly, I find that insulting on behalf of everyone we represent that they have so little faith or so think, think so little of their workers that rather than using the safety program to improve the safety in their own workplace, they would try to use it to, I don't know, get away with something. Well, getting back to this Rail Worker and Community Safety Act, uh, bipartisan, bipartisan support on that. You feel pretty good about that moving forward? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I hope so. The the committee where it would need to be reported out of has not even had a hearing on railroad safety. So, you know, there are Republicans who don't seem super inclined to, to do anything right now. Uh, what I do think it does, it continues this momentum and drumbeat uh, on the issue. It shows that people aren't forgetting um, that we, that there is an urgency still. 
Uh, and hopefully it helps put some pressure on the Senate to move their bill as well. Good. Yeah. Just uh, keep being vocal about it. Now, in the meantime, we may shut down the government in in a couple oh, of days. This this is a sad story. It's a real sad story. How would that affect uh, transportation, Greg? Oh, it, I mean, it, it would be really disastrous. I mean, first of all, um, you know, we've seen the effect the shutdowns have on our aviation system in the past. I mean, ultimately, what ended the last big shutdown was when Air traffic controllers, um, you know, were not able to get into work. They had been had, they called in sick, and there weren't enough people willing or able to be able to work mm-hmm. uh, for like the you know the second month in a row without pay. Uh, and that's true for you know the TSA workers as well. Um, but in general, when you start having a shutdown like this, uh, it prevents the government from writing grants. So, you know, all these projects that uh, that people want to see in their communities, whether it be road projects or bridges or uh, you name it, they, that, that's going to put a pause and delay everything. Um, it's going to prevent us from doing uh, certifications on things like environmental certification or reviews or safety certification. So, again, it just delays everything and draws out the, you know, it costs a ton of money. Uh, for both the contractors as well as the government, because you have to basically put a pin in everything and then just wait. Um, and, it, and it prevents us from being able to do things like train up more people, whether they be air traffic controllers, safety inspectors, and the aviation side, uh, whether it be merchant, the Merchant Marine Academies that are run by the government. I mean, all of these things, uh, these, these essential workers, as we called them during the pandemic, um, we have a real need to train as many people and educate as many people as possible. And when we do these shut, when a shutdown like this happens, it shuts down those academies. It shuts down our ability to, to train the next generation of vital workers in our transportation system. Uh, it's really just a disaster uh, for everybody, whether they realize it or not. Well, the clock is ticking. Hopefully they could come to some resolve on that. It's absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely. And, and other countries are just laughing at us right now because of what's going on in Washington. Well, you yeah. hang in there, my brother, and uh, hopefully we can get this legislation moving in the right direction. Greg Regan, on behalf of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO, ttd.org. And you can follow them on Twitter at ttdafl-cio. You take care. We'll talk to you next month. Okay, brother? All right. See you too, Flash. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow, the National Treasury Employees Union and our independent labor voice, Tom Buffenbarger. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.